today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. China, not the nice customer we thought. How does the uh, detainment of 13 uh, Canadians since the arrest of the Huawei CFO back in December change business moving forward? That's the discussion we're going to have with uh, Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So how does this information change things, or does it? 13 uh, revealed uh, earlier today or yesterday that 13 Canadians have been uh, detained in China since yep. the CFO arrest. Eight have been released. That leaves five, including the two we know of, and three more that we don't know of. How does that change the discussion? Um, I think it um, teaches us what we already knew, but the, there are, I suppose, some people you could say, in the government of Canada that are slow learners. Um, and I mean by that, um, you know, people are expressing surprise, but we've always known that China is not a rule of law country. It is a, it is a, 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 a totalitarian state. It is not rule of law. It is not democratic. And uh, they don't play by the same rules that we play by. And uh, we've, I mean, it's been like this forever. I mean, the Chinese Communist Revolution was in 1948. And yet, for some reason, when, when China joined the WTO in 2002, if my memory serves me well, we thought that, well, you know, they're going to become just like any other Western country. They are not. That does not mean, though, Scott, that we should therefore go in the other direction and make the other mistake. Right that we made from 1948 until 1971-72, when we pretended that China didn't exist, and no Western country, not a single Western country, had diplomatic relations with what was then called Red China. Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau and Canada became the first country to establish relations, followed by the United States, because Kissinger convinced the brilliant Henry Kissinger, convinced the rabid anti-communist Richard Nixon to open up the doors. I'm just sort of going through that very quickly. The to put those facts on the table, we have to go in with our eyes wide open. That is to say, we can't pretend that they're a democratic country like Canada or Germany or the U.S. At the same time, we can't pretend they don't exist. They're the second largest economy in the world. So what that suggests, and I don't think we've been doing it well, I'm very much with Gordon Ritchie, the former NAFTA negotiator of 25 years ago, who wrote a scathing op-ed in the Globe and Mail yesterday talking about how Canada has been blundering and dithering um, in its relationship with China. And I agree with that. And not, this isn't to exonerate China. This isn't to say that what they're doing is right. This isn't a question of right and wrongs. And I'm sorry to those idealist Boy Scouts that believe that. This is the world of realpolitik, as Kissinger called it. And in the world of realpolitik, the big guys, and I'm talking the United States and China, don't always play by the rules because they're the two superpowers. And so we have to walk and chart a course that is very careful to, on the one hand, we don't want to, you know, uh, compromise our principles. On the other hand, we can't be Boy Scouts and just walk away from the whole thing. So we have to do better than what we've been doing uh, thus far. And this was perfectly predictable, this crisis. The moment we arrested the daughter of basically the Chinese Stephen Jobs, it was inevitable that they were going to retaliate multiple times. Have we become too dependent? Has business become too dependent on China? As you said, we don't really have a choice, but have we let them take advantage of us, uh, take advantage of the situation knowing th- no, the market I, is there? I, I, and, and full disclosure, I've been teaching in China for 21 years, since 1997, and I get emails from some people saying, so you're on the take with the Chinese. I do not get paid by the Chinese. 
I get paid by my own university because they have a, a program in in at Shanghai University. Um, having said that, uh, you know I've traveled all over China um, many times. When I go over there, I teach once a year. I'm going over again this March, and I've realized that I've learned that China is a very first off, it's one of the oldest civilizations in the world. It's over six thousand years old. They're very conscious of the fact they're one of the oldest uh, uh, countries in the world, civilizations in the world. And they're very, very proud of that heritage, and they don't like us going and lecturing and hectoring them about human rights and so forth. You want to get the Chinese angry at you really quickly, go and do that. The other thing is that we went and, as I said, we arrested the, 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 the daughter, essentially, of their Stephen Jobs. And that, that just set them off when we should have, and this is what we should be doing, I'm not suggesting a comprehensive free trade agreement with China. I don't think that's possible because of the differences that exist between them and us. We can't start exporting military stuff to them like we're doing to Saudi Arabia. So that doesn't mean that we can't do any free trade with them. We should be saying, okay, look, we're going to be very strategic. We're going to have a targeted trade agreement, or we would want to seek a targeted agreement with you, by sector. In other words, we will agree to do business in those sectors that are not going to cause problems for either side. So agricultural products are non-controversial. Sending food, exporting food uh, to the Chinese is, I think, a very um, you know, obvious one that's a, it's a win-win. Uh, natural resources. We're not going to be exporting or importing electronic goods. I think it's increasingly clear because of the problems around Huawei with the security uh, agencies of the West, starting with the U.S. But there is still the possibility of doing business with China so long as we pick and choose our spots carefully and then avoid these pitfalls such as arresting this woman. By the way, we knew three days. Some people said to me, well, what could we have done? Well, first off, the prime minister knew three days before she was coming to Canada, she was coming to Canada on a plane flight because she, he was advised by our own agencies. He should have told Minister McCallum, sorry, Ambassador McCallum in Beijing, uh, contact Huawei and sort of whisper in their ear, we have a warrant for your arrest if you do land in Vancouver. Perfectly legitimate to do that. Warn them away. But he didn't. They landed. Is that not, though, uh, is that not denying the U.S. their request, though? I mean, no, I, I, guess not, the, I guess in a sense we're, we're not getting involved, but that being said, do we have a choice here? I mean, if the person doesn't land in Vancouver, you can't arrest them, so how can we not be cooperating with the Americans? We're saying, well, if he lands in Vancouver, we'll arrest her. So warn her, don't land in Vancouver, because we knew... But how would, the U- how would the U.S. interpret that? From everything coming out, first off, they're in the world of realpolitik. I mean, the, the American, and I'm talking now the State Department and the, and the White House, generally speaking, let's not bring Trump into it because he's such a wild card. But generally speaking, U.S. presidents, regardless of whether they're Republican or Democrat, understand that it's a messy, ugly world out there internationally in geopolitics, and that you have to deal sometimes with odious regimes like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, like Russia, where they literally kill some of their own people who are protesting the government. And each of those three countries I named have done so, and it's publicly uh, documented. So we have to deal with them. The U.S. knows that. They understand we're a middle power, not a great power, superpower. And I don't believe, and there's no evidence that suggests suggest that they would have become, they, the U.S., would have come, become angry with us if we had warned off the, this uh, individual, the CFO, so that she rerouted her plane to go through somewhere else, Australia. That being said, Ian has homes there. Was Is it not just a matter of time? 
um, until the the uh, the Americans uh, withdraw the request. Um, I mean, I don't. We haven't even gone into Scott about the debate, uh, and I want to do a sidebar here. I told you I've been teaching in, in China since 1997. I also taught for 10 years in Iran in another MBA program, a Canadian MBA program from 2000, 1998 to 2008. And I used to fly in from Ottawa to Toronto to Frankfurt, and then I'd fly in to, from Frankfurt into, into Tehran on a Lufthansa, big German airline. We all know that. The plane would be just chock-a-block full of Germans in suits. These were not tourists. These were people going in to do what? Sell lots and lots of stuff to the, to the, to the Iranians. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. Well, there was this embargo, and, and in fact, they arrested. We arrested the CFO of Huawei for violating the embargo of Iran. There have been dozens of countries and companies violating that embargo. When I taught in Iran in those 10 years, I saw American companies on the ground with their trucks and their logos starting with Caterpillar. I can name names. So my point is, I'm not condemning the Americans. I'm simply saying it's not Canada's role to get involved in these uh, squabbles, these fights between the two world superpowers, between China and the U.S. And I don't really believe it was about the uh, uh, alleged violation of the embargo against Iran. I think this is part of the ongoing jostling and jogging, you know, uh, fighting uh, over uh, who's going to run the world for the next 50 to 70 years. And I, I do not mean that in any exaggerated manner. There are only two superpowers, and they dominate the world. And there have been superpowers going back to the beginning of time because the historians have documented this. And they're jostling and pushing each other and yelling and insulting each other and arresting some of each other's people as, as part of this ongoing struggle for domination, world domination. Who's going to run the world from now until 2100, uh, which is, you know, the foreseeable future? And, and this is part of that. And we should not be caught up in that because we are not in that league. We're not in that game. We don't, to use Bill Clinton's famous phrase, we don't have a dog in that hunt. Hmm. And we should keep our dogs out. Uh, Canadian delegation, trade delegation heading down. Uh, some are saying that they are going to raise this issue. Should they be worried about their safety down there? I don't think so. I mean, one thing about the Chinese, and this is going to sound really uh, uh, perverse, and by the way, I do not consult uh, to any organization that has anything to do with China directly or indirectly. I don't have any. All I do is I teach there in a Canadian MBA. Uh, But they do have a code of conduct, I guess is the word. I mean, they they do have sort of a set of rules and uh, that they that they uh, abide by. And the fact that we have a, a delegation going over there uh, at their, uh, if not invitation, certainly it's been a fully approved by the Chinese government. I don't believe that they're going to arrest anybody from that. In fact, I applaud this, the Canadian government for uh, sending this uh, group over of Canadians representing the Canadian government, because Winston Churchill's great line, it's better to jaw-jaw than to war, war. Yeah. It's always better that we be talking. Yep. Keep the converse. It's like negotiations in labor management. Keep talking. Keep the thing going. Because the moment you go nuclear, which is a strike, then all communication stops and everything breaks down. So we need to keep that door open. We need to keep the door open so that they don't think that we're just the lackeys of the United States and that we're just carrying out the mindlessly carrying out the American agenda. And again, that's not anti-American. I'm just saying we want to 
get the idea across that uh, we uh, see we want good relations with both countries. Would any other ally have done the same thing that Canada did? I I think that uh, certainly of the bigger countries we're talking, I think that they're quite sophisticated. I don't think the Germans would ever have this would never have happened. The Germans are very very businesslike, very pro business. I was always struck, as I keep saying, by driving, flying into Iran on a on a Boeing that would held uh, or an Airbus that would have there were like three hundred people on that plane, and they were all suits. They were all corporate suits. They were all and, and nothing wrong with those people. They were all businessmen. And I mean, men, I said, like it was 99% men on that plane, mm. every flight I went in. And they were all wearing the, you know, the German three-piece suit. And, uh, and they were going in to sell product to the Iranians. And by the way, there's a huge number of German corporations in Iran uh, doing business, Siemens and all those companies. And so I don't think the Germans w- would have done that. And like the French, too, are famous for, uh, my, my goodness, up until only five or seven years ago, it was legal under European law to pay bribes in developing countries. You could write it off your German and French corporate income taxes. Imagine that. Uh, in regard to the United States, they have issued a travel advisory in regard to to, to this case involving yeah. Canada and the Huawei CFO. Surprise, Canada hasn't done the same. Um, I'm not surprised. I think that they've they've made some mistakes. The government of Canada has made some mistakes in how they've handled this, and now they're when I say backpedaling, they're they're recalibrating. Let's use something that's less uh, inflammatory. They're recalibrating, and they're I think they're sending signals. Uh, to the Chinese, look, we're really are not doing this to be the, you know, the uh, uh, the uh, the spear carrier for for the American government. We uh, and so they're trying to reestablish that relationship and sh- send messages to the Chinese that we are not doing this to get you or because we've got we've got the carrying the American agenda on our on um, on their behalf. So I think that this was a uh, prudent. Um, that they aren't, and that the, they're sending over this trade mission, for want of a better word, and and that they've got to get that relationship uh, back on an even keel, uh, not because I'm naive, but because we need to have relations with the second largest country in the world. That's why we established relations back in 1971, Pierre Trudeau. It was absolutely the right thing to do then. It's even more so today. That does not mean that we're endorsing or agreeing with things that they do that we don't do. I mean, they do have what we call human rights violations because they run their country differently. They're an authoritarian country. They're not a democracy. They're not rule of law. And so they have their values. We don't have to agree with those values. There's lots of countries in the world, Scott. Uh, uh, I think it's Pew Research uh, Think Tank in the States. I believe it's 40, 45% of all the countries of the world. There's 200 countries in the world at the UN. Uh, 40, 45% of them are not democratic, are not rule of law. So are we going to, to those people who argue we shouldn't be doing any business with Saudi Arabia or China, are we really only going to talk to other countries just like us? That's extraordinarily ethnocentric. We're only going to talk to Mm. people in Europe and America and Canada because we see ourselves as morally superior. We can still do business with them without agreeing with their system. We can do business with the Germans, and we don't agree with everything the Germans do. We do business with the Americans, and we don't agree with their gun laws or their health care system. So we can do business with them, 
and, and while carefully avoiding areas that we believe are too sensitive, such as you know uh, exporting military products to uh, regimes that are torturing their people. So we can be selective in what we do, but we still need to engage with the other countries of the world, including these odious regimes that act very differently from our country. How does Canada fix this? Is this all going to continue until we release the CFO? I have said from the, the, literally the day that that CFO was uh, arrested, I said, this problem is not going away until she is released back to the Chinese. Now, is that up to Canada or the U.S.? Well, I, how it's going to be, I still believe it's going to require a political a solution, a d- political slash diplomatic solution. I mean by that, if we allow the, the rule of law route to proceed, it can take, we know how the courts work and the system works, it can take literally a year and a half or two or three years before it goes to trial. And that's too long uh, in the world of politics where they need decision-making more rapidly. So what I'm suggesting is it's going to need a solution at the highest levels, negotiated, if not, you know, the details, certainly hammered out in principle between Prime Minister Trudeau uh, Chinese President Xi and President Trump, where they agree uh, to some very high-level, broad-brush uh, compromise that allows each one of the three to save face. So neither, no one's going to admit that they did anything wrong, and they will agree to some kind of an, uh, a compromise solution whereby she will be released. And I don't mean in two or three or four years. I mean, <laughs> how about uh, before the spring? I mean, like in the next 90 days. That, that's the kind of solution we need here, because our relationship is on ice right now. It's frozen. I mean, we're not going forward. Nothing's going to happen with the Chinese uh, in terms of anything that we're doing with them in any dimension until she is released. And that's as clear as a bell to me as someone who goes over there all the time and ta- talks to them. They're very... Does the U.S. have an appetite? very important, and, and we've embarrassed them enormously right now. We can say we were justified... They do not see it as legitimate. Uh, does the U.S. feel the same way? Is the U.S. as interested in solving this? I think they are because Trump even gave it away in that tweet where he said, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we can do this as part of a, wrap it up as part of a trade deal. Yeah. So he was thinking in those, okay, everyone said it was very badly, baldly stated, and he shouldn't have said it. But from a realpolitik point of view, um, uh, that, was, uh, that was very intelligent. Um, just for your listeners, I use this term realpolitik in, in, in the whole theory of uh, geopolitical relations. There's two schools of thought. One's called the idealist school, where you, you know, I call it the Boy Scout uh, school, you know, uh, where you believe in all these, you know, uh, very idealistic uh, views. And then there's the realpolitik view, and that was Henry Kissinger's phrase, saying, look, there's regimes out there that are not very nice, and they do very things that are not very nice, but we still have to deal with them anyways. And he says that is realpolitik. So I think that the Americans, um, especially if they thought that they could use this as a little bit of leverage to come up with a trade deal with China, which Trump desperately wants before he comes up for re-election. Um, you're heading down there. You said you're heading back down there in March. Are you yeah. concerned for your safety at all? No, no, I'm not. Maybe I'm naive. Now, maybe I'm the one who's naive. I don't believe so. Um, um, I mean, my university has a very good relationship with the uh, with the our counterpart university, and there is a counterpart partner university in Shanghai. Um, secondly, the uh, they've been very targeted, and the people that they have um, uh, they've uh, detained, arrested, uh, and I'm talking on the Chinese side. Obviously, they tend to be at least I've looked at the data, and I don't know the people at all whatsoever. I'm not suggesting that, but they tend to be people who are 
diplomats or ex-diplomats or quasi-diplomats doing things that have a lot of public policy, whereas I'm just a teacher, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and uh, so I, I don't... Especially after that other teacher was detained? Well, that was a, a high school right. teacher teaching... Uh, and then there, apparently there was a visa situation. And it was a, more a visa. And I always go over and I make sure my visas are always lined up. I book them well in advance and they're completely, you know, dotted. The eyes are crossed and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that. And I wouldn't be worried if I was a CEO, notwithstanding that we did arrest their CEO. Because I think that they realize they have a very sharp understanding of the Canadian and American political system, and they realize that in a sort of a weird way, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but there's more leverage. The Chinese have more leverage arresting somebody from the broader public sector than from the corporate sector. Because hmm. we say, hey, you know, they're paid big bucks, they're paid to take risks, so they're in a Chinese jail, well, there you go, baby, you know, suck it up, sort of thing. Uh, whereas, whereas somebody who's a public servant, they're making very modest incomes relative to a CEO, and, and so I think that they've, uh, all the people they've arrested so far, they have not been CEOs and CFOs. So I, I, I see a pattern there in that data, and I do believe it's deliberate on their part. They're putting pressure on us. And so we need to, Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau needs to talk to President Xi, or he or his underlings have to talk to the people around the Chinese president and Trump to come up with a three-way agreement um, uh, that will allow, as I said, everybody to save face. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.